Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the LSE Festival People and Change. Welcome to our live audience here at uh, the London School of Economics and welcome to our audience online. My name is James Walters and I'm the director of the Religion and Global Society Research Unit who are delighted to host this event on the changing nature of religion in today's world. Part of our motivation in setting up that unit was to try and move on from a preoccupation in social science with one question about religious change, which is whether religion is growing or whether it's going away. For a long time, people just assumed the latter, which rendered all other questions redundant. But it turns out that religion persists and it's taking new forms and connecting with politics and society in good ways and bad. So it remains, I think, one of the primary motivators of change in today's world and why it's so relevant to our theme uh, this week. To explore these issues, we've got four incredible panellists. I don't want to take too much time uh, giving you their full biographies, and they're all available on the website. So briefly, we have Professor Erin Wilson from the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, who's recently published Religion and World Politics, Connecting Theory with Practice. We have Dr. Georgette Bennett, award-winning sociologist who has co-authored with Jerry White, Religicide, Confronting the Roots of Anti-Religious Violence. We have Professor Mukulika Banerjee, author of Cultivating Democracy, Politics and Citizenship in Agrarian India, and she's part of our LSE home team. And we have John Casson, CMG, former British ambassador to Egypt and currently leader of L'Arche UK. We're going to have some discussion about the changes taking place in religion as a panel, and then, as usual, there'll be a chance for you to put your questions. For our online audience, you can submit questions via the Q&A feature. Please include your name and any affiliation. And for those of you here, I'll let you know when we open the floor. Please raise your hand and wait for the stewards with the roving mic to get to you. And again, please let us know your name and any affiliation, and I'll try to ensure we have a range of questions, both from our online audience uh, and our audience here in the room. So to kick off our discussion, Erin, I, I want to come to you. Uh, you've written an excellent overview of how we should be thinking about religion today. And in your book, you uh, argue that we need to see religion in a more fluid, shifting terms than those often used in political commentary. So can you say a bit about how we should be thinking about the changing nature of religion? Yeah, thanks for the, the small question, Jim. That's great. Um, <laughs> um, thanks to all of you for being here. It's a real delight to, to join you all for a Saturday morning conversation about this really fascinating topic. Um, so for me, I think, um, so the book was written a bit out of uh, a little bit of frustration with some of the public conversations we have around religion. So this, this question that, that Jim talked about, you know, is religion growing or is it going away? What do we actually mean by religion in that, in that context? What are we refer referring to? And it strikes me that a lot of our public conversations around religion are plagued by three main problems, and probably lots of others as well, but I'm just going to talk about those three main ones. And the, the first one is that it's quite singular, um, and that some people would, also, would call it even reductionist. We use this word religion 
as though all religious belief systems are the same, we can all treat them in the same way, we can measure them in the same way, um, and, and it just ignores the plurality and diversity that's out there. The second problem, which is related to the first, is that we're very imprecise. What part of religion and religious practice are we actually interested in exploring? Um, and, and we're often not really clear about that. So when we talk about is religion changing, well, which part of religion are we talking about? Um, so that imprecision, I think, affects our public conversations as well. And then the third problem is that it's very normative. We have these conversations about whether religion is positive or negative, um, and it carries these implicit judgments about religion's relevance and its value. And that kind of, in some ways, misses the point, I would say, because whether you think religion's a good thing or a bad thing, it's there. It's part of the lived experience of people's daily lives in a whole range of contexts around the world. So rather than trying to decide whether it's good or bad, we should just acknowledge that it's there and then try to understand it in more nuanced ways. And so then this is actually answering your question now after the setup. Um, but so what I think we should be doing, so, so short summary of that, we tend to start with the the why and the how of religious change before we actually establish the what, the who and the where. So, and I think we should actually start with the where. So we start with context. What does religion, what religion means differs from place to place and across different times. So we need to first say where we're interested in religion and religious change. And that's not just geographical spaces, but also sectors of public life. The second thing is who or which. So which religion are we actually interested in? And then even more precisely than that, like which sect or denomination or branch of that particular religion are we interested in? Um, and then say what it is that we're interested in about religion. Are we interested in how religious leadership is changing? Are we interested in how institutions and their public role is changing? Are we interested in how people practice their religions and how that's changing? Um, so we need to, uh, need to be much more precise about that. Also the, the relationship between religious and political identities and how that kind of affects what is happening in the public sphere. So some of you might listen to that and say, well, we can't all be experts on, on every single religion. And no, we can't, and I don't, neither am I saying that we should be. What I think we should do is adopt this kind of set of questions around where, who, and what, and answer those questions first, then move on to the why and the how. And so it's that sort of not becoming experts in every single religion, but rather all of us having a set of questions that we go to whenever we encounter religion in the public sphere and then seeking to answer those first. And I think that would just get us a lot further in our public conversations than, than this sort of very singular, reductionist, imprecise and normative uh, assumption-driven idea of religion that we seem to currently operate with. Thank you, Erin. So one of the uh, one of the what's that you talk about is um, uh, identity, religion, and, and politics. How they're how they're entangled. Um, and uh, coming to you, Georgia, your book really confronts, I would say, the dark side of that when we have in groups turning on out groups and seeking to eradicate the religious other, the religious minority. Um, so can you tell us um, a bit about your book, why and how the creation of a new moral and legal category that you call religicide uh, should change our thinking about and our response to anti-religious violence? 
Right. And uh, that probably is not a term that any of you have heard before, and that's because it didn't exist. But anti-religious violence is the fastest growing type of violence. In fact, a lot of other forms of violence are decreasing. And yet, there's a particular kind of anti-religious violence that has gone unnamed, unprosecuted, and undeterred. And that's why my co-author and I felt that we would make an attempt to name it. And the name we gave it was Religicide. Religicide is a highly targeted form of violence. It targets a particular religion and seeks out to completely eradicate it. Not only to eradicate its practitioners, but to eradicate its habitats, its sacred spaces, and its entire cultural heritage. Now, religicide has been around for a long time, but there are a number of religicides going on right now as we sit here, religicides in China against the Uyghurs and the Tibetan Buddhists, religicide in Myanmar against the Rohingya. We saw the religicide against the Yazidis by ISIS. And arguably, the religicides against native peoples in North America, South America, Australia, elsewhere. So one could go back to the Holocaust, and perhaps that is the first modern religicide. But one could ask the question, how is it that these human rights violations are going on in the plain sight of all of us, and yet the perpetrators are literally getting away with murder, the murder of people and the murder of a religion. And that's because there's nothing in international law that covers all of the elements of religicide. There are pieces that are covered in various parts of international law, but the international system just does not hold up when it comes to prosecuting the perpetrators of religicide. And what complicates it further is that it can be one religion against another religion, such as what we're seeing in Myanmar, Buddhists against Muslims. It can be a state against a religion, as what we're seeing in China. Or it can be a non-state actor against a religion, such as what we saw with ISIS and the Yazidis. So that makes it particularly important to mobilize other aspects of response to these crimes that we're seeing. And religious leaders have a particularly important role to play in terms of a response. Because as much as the world's great religions are all about peace and caring for the stranger and love, it's also within religion that we find the roots of hate speech. And hate speech is where religiouside begins. And it's the point at which it is very important to intervene. 
And how does that work? It happens when one religion feels that it holds a monopoly on truth. And that leads to apocalyptic thinking, which divides the world into the children of light and the children of darkness. And once you divide the world that way, <clears throat> it becomes very easy to demonize and dehumanize with hate speech. And once you've dehumanized the other, once you've turned them into a caricature filled with contempt, it's a very, very short step to violence. Mm, thank you very much, George. Well, um, Mukalika, you write on India, uh, and your recent book was about democracy in India. India is a country not immune to these issues, unfortunately. Um, tell us about, about how religion is changing in India and how it relates to democracy. So, India is a, is a test case, really, for it's a perfect illustration of what you've just heard. Um, it is a place, it's exactly, I think, understanding India is doing what Erin urges us to do, which is to look at a context, look at a particular religion in some depth, because then you understand the contours of that issue that can be then applied anywhere else. This is how anthropology works, that's what I'm... That's what I do, I'm an anthropologist. Now what's happening in India uh, now, there are two big aspects of India that most of you will be familiar with. On the one hand, it's the posters on the underground India as incredible India, the place of spirituality where yoga comes out and vegetarianism and so on. Uh, the beautiful spiritual India where you see incredible acts of piety and devotion on the banks of rivers, at temples, and so on. So everyday lived religious practice is very evident to any visitor to India. The second thing is maybe what you would read in the Financial Times or The Economist in the headlines of whatever newspaper you read, where India's current government is now led by a political party that self-avowedly believes in a religion, it, uh, in, a, in an ideology called Hindutva. Now Hindutva as, is a political ideology, but it's building on Hinduism as a religion. And that's the majoritarian impulse which uh, leads to religiouside of religious minorities, in particular the Muslims. Hindutva is not religion, but it is taken on the garb, literally, of the saffron robes of Hindu monks and saints and religious practitioners to forward what is a naked chauvinistic majoritarian ideology that aims to upend India's constitutional vision as a multi-religious nation which is what makes it so attractive to visitors and indeed who's a, you know, for Indian citizens who live there. The, the Muslim population, all religions of the world are found and many originate in India. Uh, Christianity in, in India predates Christianity in Britain by centuries, for instance. So this is a place of all world religions. Um, but the Muslim population is the largest and the most significant um, majority, minority. It's, it's a population of 200 million people. And this is the third largest national Muslim population anywhere in the world. 
right? So it's, it's larger than uh, most uh, Muslim nations. So therefore, the use of religion in the name of political ideology is what is happening in India. And therefore, it becomes really important for us to make sure that this is not about Hinduism. It is the use of Hinduism for a particular political project. And one interesting illustration of this, there's actually in the news as we speak, uh, controversy raging about a film that's just been released, which uh, attempts to represent, you know, India has famously 33 million gods and goddesses. I don't know how they came to that number, but <laughs> we're told. Uh, but importantly, I think you know, that we very routinely worship goddesses, I do. Um, um, but what is, uh, what is interesting in the iconography of uh, these gods and goddesses, and they're ubiquitous, they're calendars, they're statues, they're temples, they're paintings, it is everywhere in popular art and in classical art. But what has happened, say, with the, one of these gods, Ram, who is very well known, uh, the hero of one of the two great epics, the Ramayana, Ram was always depicted in Hindu iconography as a gentle, uh, calm person, always flanked by his wife Sita and his brother Lakshman and his best friend Hanuman. So this was the iconography of Hinduism. What political Hindutva does is uses Ram as a rallying cry for this political project and the literally the visual iconography of Ram has changed such that he's now an isolated figure, muscular, and art historians have traced this through, um, through iconography. He's become more muscular, he's much more aggressively armed, and all his attendant relationships of friendship, of, of marriage, and, and brotherhood disappear. So you become this isolated, masculine uh, figure who is fighting ostensibly for the cause of Hindus. And this is then a signal for uh, a certain mobilization of religion, of a certain masculine chauvinism of the ideology of Hindutva, which is what we see at practice in India all the time. I should just say before I end, that there is also a very positive story about religion in India, which I will come back to later when Jim invites me. Welcome back to Thank you, Magalika. Um, so, John, coming to you, you, you went from being ambassador in a country, Egypt, which also struggles uh, with religious divisions, but you now run a faith-based charity. Um, so I wonder if you want to say something about these contrasting settings and what conclusions it's led you to draw about how religion can change individuals and society. Yeah, thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, I really welcome this conversation, actually. I really welcome the way that Erin set it up for us because, uh, I mean, I come to it as a practitioner. I spent 20 years in government and foreign policy, um, and I'm a person of faith trying to operate in various worlds. Um, and I, I've been Jim sent me notice of that question a few days ago, and I've been struggling to, to think about it because it, um, religion in that big way doesn't seem much use as an explanatory category to reflect on my experience. Um, so I really, I really welcome the chance to think in a more precise, specific, contextual way about it. And I suppose it's, I started to think maybe there were four, I, four, four words beginning with I that might help us give us sort of lenses into 
what we're thinking about. So, um, and, and Egypt illuminates it in quite interesting ways. So one would be identity, um, which has been talked about a lot already. Um, and in each case, it seems to me, this conversation is welcome because it's acknowledging that religion is a very powerful factor. And whatever we mean by religion, it's a very powerful factor in, in this vector. Um, in, the, in this case, identity is, is, a, is a vector of, of power, how power is mobilized politically and personally, and also how power is resisted. Uh, and, um, but it, it, you know, so actually kind of more religious literacy and people who think about power and politics is, is really helpful. But if you, if you look at Egypt, you immediately realize it's quite, it's quite nuanced and religion interplays with other things in a way that's quite hard to disentangle. Um, uh, most Egyptians have overlapping identities as, as Arabs, as Africans, as usually as either Muslims or Christians, and as Egyptians. Um, and there's an important balance of power between those identities for Egyptians. Um, and uh, I would say the nation is the most powerful, probably, of them. The national identity for Egyptian as a part of a 5,000-year-old nation. Um, and in, in that context, actually, religious identity for Muslims offering a kind of pan-national solidarity um, sometimes is an important balancing factor to the, to the strength of nationalism, which in my view could be quite toxic. Um, so you see a sort of solid, pan-Arab solidarity and a pan-Muslim solidarity with Palestinians, um, which can be a, a factor in Egyptian foreign policy. But you also see it as a very toxic thing. There was an attempt to, by Islamic State to mobilize uh, pan pan-Muslim, pan-Islamic identity against Christians in Egypt. Um, so, the, so the way it plays out can be very, very toxic and can be an important resistance to very toxic things in that identity vector, if you like. So the second I would mention would be institutions. Um, and again, it's, it's nuanced in Egypt um, because it's a very centralised state, <laughs> invented bureaucracy, invented... Taxation, it, you know, it's geographically fundamentally centralised the way Egypt works, and the existence of Islamic institutions and, and, and church institutions, but especially Al-Azhar University as the seat of Sunni learning in the in the Sunni world, alongside that very powerful authoritarian state, um, is, is is nuanced in some sense as a potential source of pluralism in the Egyptian political context and a, and a counterbalance to the state. Uh, maybe in a way that in early modern European states, you know, in late Christendom, the, the existence of church and state in, in uh, balance to each other created space for, eventually for political pluralism. On the other hand, there's a constant dance of attempts to co-opt Al-Azhar and co-opt um, Islamic scholarship. Um, so they put it to the service of the state, but that then causes a reaction because it delegitimizes Al-Azhar as the as the, the body which can, can articulate for Muslims what a Muslim approach is, and it allows space for these reactions, including the very extreme Islamist ones, the Muslim Brotherhood or, the, or, or um, ISIS or others. So um, there's a lens of identity, there's a lens of institutions, and there's a lens of ideas. Um, uh, you know, the, to look a bit more broadly in that region, the way that um, the ideas of Christian Zionism, which are a very novel idea within Christianity, within American Christianity, have been have been mobilised in the in the Arab uh, Palestinian Israeli dispute. Uh, it's, it's a very powerful example of how religious ideas can have a real real world effect. Um, but then, of course, religious ideas um, can also be very sort of liberating 
uh, resistance to, to um, damaging power structures. And to bring it very close to home, the charity I work for now is all about building communities of mutuality for people with learning disabilities, with intellectual disabilities, and those without. And the, you know, the fundamental idea we operate from, which is that somebody who might have profound intellectual disabilities, may not, may not communicate with verbal speech, um, is a full person uh, and can live a whole full life and is made in the image of God in Christian language, is a powerful idea. Um, uh, but it's, in a way, it's a faith position. Um, uh, which has to be contended for and, and lived out. So I suppose that we, uh, I would sort of pick up Aaron's challenge to analyse what's going on in these vectors of, of, of power, how it's used and how it's uh, resisted identity institutions and um, uh, ideas uh, to get more specific. And, and what it tells me in my experience is uh, religion, whatever we mean by that, can be about a very sort of uh, liberating reality and exactly the opposite and in a way the corruption of the best can be the worst it can, its power can be used in very damaging ways and, it, and sometimes the same idea the same institution the same identity can have both of those two edges so what really interests me as a practitioner and a person of faith is how do I use power and how do I live out my faith in a way that liberates me from it, it simply becoming co-opted by whatever my narrow power interest is how, how do I have freedom uh, to, 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 to discern the difference between those, the, um, those different impulses of, of, of is, power is, is religion is toxic or not toxic. And so I would offer you a fourth eye, just to finish, um, which is, a, is sort of about interiority. It's about the individual uh, work of personal practice and, and for communities to develop interiority together. So how, how, how might I, as a, as a person operating within a faith tradition and operating with levers of power in government, um, achieve enough wisdom and character and internal awareness and internal freedom not to simply mobilize identity and institutions and ideas um, for, na for narrow self-serving purposes, but for something that's more liberating. Um, and for me, it's about, it's about the practices which decenter us from our own communal interests, our own institutional interests, our own personal interests. And, for, and the practices that I've found powerful in that sense are one is, one is interiority, it's a practice of prayer, it's a practice of self-examination, it's a practice of, of understanding myself as part of something bigger that's more transcendent than me. And if I could quote from the Gospel of Oprah, um, <laughs> we, are, we, are what we, we become what we pay attention to. So what are we paying attention to in our daily practice that might allow us to become more than just somebody who's mobilising the power of religion for, for self-serving purposes? And to quote a different gospel, um, uh, actually, what was it? I forgot what I was going to say there. Um, but so my, the other practice, as well as sort of interiority of personal religious practice, it would be about where, where you choose to plant yourself um, and where, where, we, uh, where, we, where we make our commitments, where we make, make our relationships, um, shapes us. Um, so I made a deliberate choice to not simply be trying to be at the top of government in the room where it happens, because I thought that was shaping me into a certain type of person. And to develop more freedom, I wanted to put myself with people who are marginalised and not doing things for them, but being with them, because I thought it might give me freedom to grow in a different way. So the other gospel I wanted to quote was the gospel of Leonard Cohen, which is that the, um, the cracks are where the light comes in. And the margin, placing yourself outside your, your, your senses of power, your comfort zone, 
uh, with others across boundaries, again, is a liberating fact, which I think, so I think, I think there is a possibility to find places to stand that let a bit of light in, so you're not simply uh, mobilizing religion in whatever way it suits you, uh, not even aware that you're doing it, but that you can, you can achieve the wisdom and character to operate with this, this powerful thing um, in a way that's a little bit more reflective and free. Um, yeah, I, I'd like to pick up on something you said almost as a throwaway, but it's going to take us away from, you know, this highly personal and back to the global. When you were talking about state versus religion, and you said that that makes room for pluralism, that takes me back to the piece of Westphalia which of course was meant to resolve the religious wars in Europe. And it created the concept of state sovereignty. And we paid a price for that. We're still paying a price for that because it's state sovereignty at the expense of the rights of the individual. And it's precisely because of state sovereignty that we are unable to intervene in religious sides and other forms of anti-religious violence. Because when you look at state sovereignty, and if you look at the UN Charter, unless a conflict, unless human rights violations are spilling over into other states, you cannot come in and intervene and it's very, very important in terms of addressing anti-religious violence that we elevate the rights of the person over the rights of the state, and that along with the rights of the state come obligations of the state to deal with situations like this. And, and going back to what you were saying, um, I think we may be seeing the beginnings of a religious side in India because there is so much hate speech going on now. And, and a lot of research has been done on how hate speech and the weaponization of language predicts violence. The good news is that we're at a point where one can still intervene before it turns into a full-blown religious side. So I just wanted to pick up on those two points. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thanks, Georgia. I think we're, we're sort of moving towards some questions around what, what, how do we respond to some of these challenges? What do we do about um, this apparent rise in, in more sectarian religious perspectives, their fusion with, um, with, with nationalism? Mughali, um, do you want to comment on that from an Indian perspective and perhaps say a little more of the, 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 the bottom-up perspective that I 
promise to allow you. <laughs> sure, thank you. <clears throat> I think what's interesting with any religion is the what Max Weber would have called an elective affinity. But I think you know every religion has throws up the resources, the imagination for a number of quite progressive ideas, right? And I'm going to just quickly tell you how I see it in terms of its relationship to democracy. This is not about, therefore, religious nationalism. It's about the values that you require to create a democratic culture and what religion, how religion shapes you as a person, you know, some sense of interiority. Now, where I did fieldwork, and over 20 years I've kept going back to the same village, so I know this place really well. A majority of the population is Muslim, so that's what I studied most closely. And it's very interesting how Islam, as a religion, has the resources. If you think of democratic values, what are they? Um, there is a certain commitment to egalitarianism. There is a, a commitment to redistribution of wealth, so that there's a minimum standard of living for everyone. There is a commitment to imagining a common good that is much larger than self-interest. And if you think about Muslim religious practices, it does that. When you go to say your prayers on, on an Eid day, on a big festival day to a mosque, you can't choose where you're going to stand to say your prayers. You, you stand where there is space. You fill the next space. So who you're standing next to, and in a village where there is otherwise a lot of social distinction marked by caste, by class, by gender, of course only men go, this is a big distinction, but that's a separate story, but even amongst men, uh, there is a certain egalitarianism to the space of, of prayer. Qurbani, which is the when cattle sacrifice or animal sacrifice is done on one of the two big eats, we think about it and then in places like India where of course there's a demonization of of Muslims, it's all about consuming meat and a sort of uh, criminalization of, of beef as it's happened. But actually, if you look at Qurbani, the whole idea of sacrifice and idea of Abrahamic sacrifice is precisely to give up your most loved animal. And in rural India, people do live in this human animal economy, so they do have favorite cows, favorite cattle that they offer for sacrifice. And then the meat is really redistributed. So where, you know, where I worked, it was a very poor village, and just 11 families could afford to give up one cattle for sacrifice. And the rest of the year, everybody pretty much had a vegetarian diet because it was too expensive to eat fish or meat. But on that day of Eid, everybody in the village got to eat meat, a little bit, because most of the rules of sacrifice of qurbani is how many parts you can keep how many parts you give to relatives how many parts you give to people you're not related to and this is quite strictly observed and then finally i think there is uh, my earlier work the earlier book which is called why india votes showed this that in india if you have to explain its rising voter turnouts if you get away from who people are voting for to why they're bothering to vote at all one of the things that you hear from people is, of course you must vote. It is free, it is my duty as a citizen to go and cast a vote. This idea of inviolate commitment, which is what we sense really in our research across India, did this with a team of 12 researchers, is this idea of inviolate commitment often comes from religion. 
If you fast on Fridays, you fast on Fridays. It doesn't matter if your best friend's getting married and there's a feast. If you have to fast that day, you do. And this idea of inviolate commitment comes. And then finally, I would say, and this is where the title of my book comes from, which I think really relates to what all of us have been saying today, is an idea of cultivation. That you, you cannot be religious or you cannot be spiritual uh, by saying you are. You've got to practice, and a lot of practice, and, and prayer, or fasting, or whatever it is, observances of different kinds, is really about cultivating a certain self, such that religion then becomes a sort of ethical resource. It's not just about that religion, it's about a set of ethics and predispositions that you take to other areas of life. So, uh, thanks, Mugli, and I, I see what you said about more kind of grassroots capacities of, of religious cultivations relating a bit to what John was mm. saying within Egypt as a counterbalancing to authoritarian nationalism and so forth. Um, John, I don't know if you, you want to comment more on that, but I, I'm, I'm curious to just come back perhaps to the top down because um, freedom of religion has become a, 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 an area of policy that particularly in North America and, and Europe has uh, really grown uh, in influence over the last few years and perhaps towards the end of your time in the Foreign Office. Um, uh, and, and I just wonder whether, whether you see this, and Erin, you also touch on this in your book, so we'll come to you. Is, is this an effective tool for, um, for fostering the kind of religious morality and, and freedom that we, that we want? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I, I'm somewhat wary of it because of its origins. I think it, it, um, it often, ex although it's, you know, it's, it's articulating very welcome language of rights and important uh, rights that are well established um, and need to be protected. But it, it's being, it seems to me, it's being mobilised often for in 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 the UK, but particularly in North America for domestic political reasons. It's not actually about the context it, it's being aimed at. It's, it's sometimes mobilised as part of the, the, the kind of culture wars of, of religion against secularism in the West. Um, uh, and I think, off, I suppose I feel uncomfortable when a religion is, is, is working very hard to defend its own rights against others. You know, as well as we were talking about with decentering. You know, if, if, if it's all being used at the service of defending our boundaries of our in against the, out, the other outs, I, I worry that it, it's not going to have the, the positive effect we might hope for it. But it's a good example of how I, is, is idea and institutional work there, which can be important and need to be defended, but also won't necessarily be good unless the, it's accompanied by the sense of what, what's, what's, what's the real sort of power and motivation that's at work with it. So, um, you know, I think that, I suppose I would say the jury is out in terms of whether it will have a positive effect in the, in the global situations it's, it's supposedly used for because it seems to be it's, it's a lot of the, the, the energy in it is about domestic identity politics as much as it is about the foreign policy outcomes where it might be used. Erin, I think you probably share some of John's reservations. Yeah, um, so I do a lot of work with um, with diplomats and civil society people and also people in the, the defence forces around um, these kinds of topics and I also uh, encounter a lot of different academic perspectives on the right to freedom of religion or belief and its its utility. So there are sort of staunch defenders and advocates of for and there are 
people who say, well, form is complete freedom of religion or belief. Sorry, yes, freedom of religion or belief. That um, form is um, like form is impossible because not because we can't decide what religion is. So, um, and one of the things, and this I think goes directly to what to what John was saying, is that one of the the dangers is that external actors, and particularly in foreign policy, will mobilise this language of the right to freedom of religion or belief, or like there is a, a transatlantic distinction, the US will use religious freedom and the Europeans like to say freedom of religion or belief, as though that makes it somehow less kind of, has it has fewer connections with colonialism and Christianity by stealth, which is often the perception of the religious freedom uh, lobby. But the reality from, from our research, we've done some research on perceptions of this right in India and Indonesia, actually, and um, the, the reality is that people outside of the transatlantic don't make that distinction. Any kind of attempt by particularly European and American powers to promote the right to form is inevitably viewed with a degree of suspicion in most of these contexts. Um, and so I think for people who, and this, this isn't to say that we should ignore this right, absolutely not, that's not what I'm, I'm saying, but what I am saying is that, sorry, harping on my own research again, we have, we have to start with the context. We have to understand what religion means for people in a specific place. Um, part of our research revealed that uh, grassroots organisations in Gujarat and India just avoided using the term religion and belief altogether because it actually made the, the Muslim people in their community more of a target for violence than less. And so instead they started talking about people left behind by development and they became the alliance for justice and peace rather than having any kind of reference to religion. And so for that, that is really like not appreciating the nuances of these terms in specific contexts can really have life or death consequences for people on the ground. And that's, that's why this matters so much. And I think one other thing that John said that I just really want to emphasise is this question of power. I have this conversation with my students all the time. We get into debates of, you know, is, is religion better or is secularism better? I mean, religion and secularism are, like, as Talal Assad said, neither of those things actually exists but assumptions about them exist and they are the things we need to be interested in. But they really come down to contestations of power. And what we need to be looking at is who has power, what are the sources of those power, how are they using it and how is it being resisted? Can I just mention the, 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 the experience of Coptic Egyptians? There's another context. So um, in Egypt there's probably perhaps 100 million people of whom perhaps 10 million are Coptic Christians who whose roots as a community go back before the arrival of Islam. So they go back pretty much 2,000 years. Um, and so they've, they've lived for a millennium and a half as a minority, uh, religious minority, under quite a good deal of pressure in terms of their civil and political rights, and quite often, even up to today, violence. Um, but they have quite a rich uh, and different discourse about their experience as a religious minority that, uh, that, that doesn't... Uh, mobilise the, the, the language of freedom and religious belief uh, uh, in that in the way that we're using it in the West at the moment. That there's a sense that um, first of all to be to be defended by the Christian West as our guys is extremely unhelpful in current context, and that's not how they identify identify themselves anyway. There's a sense that our calling and our identity is to endure minority status and pressure uh, rather than to remove it. Um, 
Um, and there's a sense that we would like to handle our own problems in our own way. We would like to negotiate with the different state and the Islamic, the Muslim community that we live alongside in our own way and make compromises sometimes and stand up for ourselves sometimes, uh, rather than be, become part of a sort of single agenda that arises in a slightly different language outside, outside in the sort of global world, if you like. I actually wanted to quickly pick up on something that Georgette said as well. In I'll be very quick. Um, uh, the, so one of the things, Georgette was talking about states mobilising religion and, or, and human rights against individuals. And I think that's something we also see in the context of freedom of religion or belief. You will hear states talking about their right to, uh, to their own religion as a, as a way of resisting rights for women or rights for LGBTQI communities as well. And, you know, Georgette made this point very clear. Individuals have rights and they, they should be upheld over and above the rights of states. So states, have, states do have rights in relation to other states, but they have responsibilities when it comes to their own citizens. And I think that's something we need to be aware of in this discourse too. And Erin, I wanted to pick up on the definitional issues mm -hmm. that you were talking about. Uh, interestingly enough, in the US, we've somehow gotten around that. Mm. And we've gotten around it in, in this way. On issues, for example, of accommodation mm -hmm. of religious practices, religious <coughs> needs in the workplace, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act doesn't attempt to define religion. I mean, you can't discriminate on the basis of religion, but it doesn't try to define religion. What it does say is that you have to base it on sincerely held, consistently practiced beliefs. So, belief. It doesn't attempt to say, well, this is a religion, that, that is not a religion. So it's, it's an interesting take on that definitional issue. Yeah. In practice, that's oh. also very interesting to see how that plays out. <laughs> I'm going to open to the floor for that's questions. That's another session. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> another session. Yeah. Um, we, we've got very limited time this morning, so I really am looking for concise questions and no speeches. Uh, and I'll take a round of three, which you can direct to one person on the panel or, or, or see uh, who, who wishes to respond. Um, so, uh, so you had your hand up. Um, uh, first of all, we'll go to you, uh, and um, then we'll uh, come to Christian. Uh, and um, let's see, no, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we'll come to you. Um, so, so can you throw a mic? Right. And say your name, uh, and if you have an affiliation. Sorry. Um, Ewan Grant. I'm um, a former law enforcement intelligence analyst. I'm now effectively a journalist. Uh, particularly reporting on the current war. And, and my question is for everyone, based particularly on um, Dr. Wilson's uh, book and her comments, um, how are the Western, particularly Christian churches, but Western religious uh, groups and organizations based in a secular society, adjusting to the weaponization of religion. I would particularly refer to the three people who visited South Sudan a month or so back, the moderator of the Church of Scotland, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Pope visited together. And I wonder if people in their organizations paid sufficient attention, I see I'm getting a 
smile there, of um, the Russian Orthodox Church ministering to some rather different people across the border in the Central African Republic. Okay, thank you. And uh, we'll go straight to the back there, please. Yes, hi. Uh, my name is Christian. I'm a student here at the LSE. Thank you all for your time. My, my question is simple in the number of words, but quite complex in its, in its content. But it, where, where do you draw the line between religion, ideology, and cultural identity? Um, we see that in conflicts around the world, so I'd be curious to hear your, every, everyone's reflections on that. Thanks very much. And then, uh, yeah. Hi, um, I'm Josh. I am currently an RE teacher at a secondary school in London. Um, and I'm going to be doing a Master's in Sociology at LSE next year. Um, I guess my question becomes, kind of goes into more of the academic like, world, in the sense of when you look at religious studies um, and scholars of religions, um, quite often, especially when you look at anthropology or sociology, they're no longer in sociology departments or anthropology departments, I guess, quite often they're actually within perhaps a religious studies unit or a religious studies and theology department. And my question is, is it helpful or unhelpful that those scholars are based in those departments that focus on religions? Is that helpful or does that mean that they're losing something from their main discipline? Well, the chair of the panel definitely has a view on that question. But, um, can, can I just say something? Because you said you're a sociologist. I'm a sociologist as well. Do you know how they define sociology when I was a doctoral student? The detailed study of the obvious. <laughs> but that toolkit allows you to do a lot of things. So we've got a question about um, Western religious groups' responses to um, uh, the emerging violence um, uh, with the example given of Sudan. Um, Question about identity, religion, um, uh, ideology, and culture, which Aaron, I don't know perhaps if you want to speak to that, and, um, and then something about the place of religion within the university. Who wants to kick us off? Um, Maybe oh, oh, kick, okay. You want, okay, you want this first? Okay. Um, I, in fact, it touches on the cultural identity issue as well. Um, yeah, in in a lot of anthropology departments around this country, at least, the anthropology of religion is absolutely central to it. We cannot imagine teaching anthropology without teaching the anthropology of religion for two reasons. One is anthropology is a holistic social science. We study all aspects of any human society, and it would be frankly absurd to study any human society without religion. That was one, and just in the way that we teach economy and, and kinship and marriage and politics. You know, those are the building blocks, and that continues to remain. The second thing is the anthropology of religion actually learning something about people's idea of ritual, of the sacred, of inviolate commitment, etc. from the anthropology of religion has been very important to theorize other aspects of human life. So it has value beyond understanding of religion. What you were talking about, there is, it's not about understanding a religion from the inside unless there is a study that we are engaging with, and of course we go beyond world religions, we go across to all kinds of indigenous systems of thought with climate change discussions at the moment, it's absolutely urgent to talk about human-non-human -human interactions 
animism, spiritualism, etc., is it has taken on a different level of importance and urgency. And really, anthropology is the only discipline that has taken these systems of thought seriously. But we're very clear what the limits are. And when we, when it is issues of theology and faith, uh, there are limits to anthropological understanding, and that's why we need people like Jim on the faculty at LSC as well, um, as a fellow traveler, if not as an anthropologist. And, and therefore, I think you know this sort of answers your question that to separate religious identity from cultural identity is is almost absurd uh, in, in some ways. But I like the others. Thank you. Um, I'm going to do a quick round of all three questions. So on the first question around um, the weaponization of religion and um, what I think you're describing there is a kind of religious diplomacy. So yeah, yeah, very yeah. Much so. yeah. Very, very much so. Um, I think there's there's a couple of I think it's absolutely political what is happening there. Um, I think there's definitely um, there's definitely an attempt to sort of signal. Uh, where where the political landscape lies and the affiliations lie between the actions of those different actors. And I think there is also some political diplomacy taking place via that religious diplomacy. Um, and I think there needs to be more awareness of religious diplomacy and more kind of, um, uh, maybe not liaison, but you know, at least more awareness of it within sort of conventional foreign policy outfits as well. Um, on the, the question about the line between religion, where do you draw the line? I would say you don't. Um, and again, you have to go to context. So you've got to understand what's going on. I'm sounding like a broken record, but yeah, I think. And, I, and it shifts. That's the other really important thing about this is once you kind of identify, I don't think you can disentangle them, um, but I think you have to be aware that that landscape is constantly shifting. Um, and then on the third question, I think this is this is also something that that I encounter with with foreign policy departments as well. Like, do you have a, a specific office of religion that specialises in religion, or do you try and quote unquote mainstream religion? And I think there's pros and cons to both. So um, I think having a specific religious studies department in the in the academic context, because people's assumption often is religion isn't really that relevant unless you are religious. Um, it can be detrimental. Um, so, and, and so part of, you know, I've been on the board of my faculty for a few years now and part of our challenge has been thinking about, you know, you have to work much harder to show people actually religion is relevant to what you do. Um, so that requires some creativity from scholars of religion to, and to get past the idea that what we're doing is training priests and Sunday school teachers because we're non-conventional, that's not what we do. Um, but then the flip side of that is if you quote unquote mainstream religion, then everyone kind of goes, oh well, we've done religion. We know what, it's a bit like mainstreaming gender. We've done gender, we all know about gender, like we don't, like case closed, let's, let's all move on. And that's just not the case. You've got to have, as with gender and religion, you've got to have constant attention for these in the mix. Um, just to do a short plug, my book actually has a really helpful diagram in it to kind of help um, understand this entanglement. So feel free to check. It's, it's available for free online. Feel free to check it out. Yes, I'll come to John and then, and then we'll come to you. Um, 
Yeah, I think it was you, and was that your question? Um, I'm afraid I don't know enough about this precise situation you were talking about, whether religion is being weaponized or being used as a disarming factor in, in those African contexts. I suppose I would, I would simply say, um, just as everyone was just saying that the diplomats and academics need a religious literacy, I think religious leaders need a political literacy if they're going to get involved in this kind of thing. Um, uh, and I think the thing for them to pay attention to, I'll go back to what I was saying earlier on about decentering, is is what they're doing entrenching the or the existing dynamics of conflict and the existing sense of in out boundaries, or is it opening up opening up new opportunities to reframe it and reimagine it in terms of relationships across difference? Um, because I think that's that's where they're bringing their specific the, the potential for offering a specific fresh asset into a diplomatic situation. So I'd like to take a crack at all three questions as well, but from a, from a different angle. Um, I understood at least part of your question to have to do, have to do with intervention, when religious in, institutions, religious actors intervene. Um, Thirty years ago, I founded an organization, the Tannenbaum Center for Interreligious Understanding. And one of our signature programs is Peacemakers in Action. And one of the things that we learned from all of the case studies that we did of our peacemakers is that there's a big difference between religious institutions and religious actors, religiously motivated actors. In the cases of Northern Ireland and Bosnia, for example, and the conflicts that were going on there. The religious actors who intervened in these armed conflicts really had to operate outside of their religious institutions. In the case of Northern Ireland, um, the IRA priest, uh, Father Alex Reed, and the loyalist paramilitary Reverend Roy McGee they were not at all supported by their churches. Yeah, they, they were. Remember the name James Chesney. Remember, everybody <laughs> in the room should remember James Chesney. So it's, it's an interesting thing that in order to use your religious motivation for peacemaking, very often you have to operate outside your institutions. In terms of uh, the issue of religious identity, ideology, and culture, I am so glad uh, on what you reported about your research about Muslims in, in the village and how consistent Islam can be with democracy and how egalitarian it is. Because we tend to confound the culture within which your religion is practiced with the religion itself. And finally, in terms of um, religious studies, part of the work that we do at the Tannenbaum Center with these peacemakers in action is we try to teach diplomats how to work with religious actors. John, I think you will agree that there has been a tremendous dearth of knowledge on the part of diplomats at our peril. Uh, because <clears throat> it's extremely important for diplomats to understand the religious context. 
At the same time, we try to work with seminaries and other places where religious people are trained, clergy or just people who want to enter the religious life in some other way, because they need to be taught conflict resolution skills. They need to be taught peacemaking skills, because if you're going to be true to the values of your, the core values of your religion, you need to understand how to do that stuff. So that takes us beyond anthropology departments, sociology departments, etc. Thanks, thanks, George Ed. I've unfortunately been given very strict instructions about not overrunning, and we have just uh, come to the end of our time. So I'm pleased to say that we've got um, copies downstairs of Mukulika and Georgette's books, and they're going to go down and sign copies for anyone who, who wants to buy them. Erin's book is available open source online. I highly recommend it. It's a really good teaching resource, especially for those involved in uh, education. And she's also uh, written a little summary on our Religion and Global Society blog. Um, you can read that blog post. Um, so we'll, uh, at the end of the session, we'll all go downstairs. And if you want to talk to any of the panels, that's, that's where we'll be. Um, but it just remains for me to thank you all for joining us, both those of you here in the room and those online, and please let's thank our speakers. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.